All right, I'm glad to be here today. My name is Tim Cartwright. I'm uh, the junior high pastor at Temple Bible Church, and uh, I have a unique connection to Grace Bible. I've been here a couple times before. Some of you that have been here a while, maybe you've seen me before. But uh, my connection is that uh, Dave McMurray and Temple Bible Church coming here to start this church actually gave me a job in Temple. So, uh, so it's a great connection. I'm very thankful that this church started in many ways. Uh, but actually, Dave moved out of his office there at TBC, and I moved in as the junior high pastor. He was the family pastor, and then it was kind of a chain reaction. Our junior high guy became the high school guy. The high school guy became the family pastor. And so I kind of have that connection. I kind of can follow you guys and how old you are, because that's how long I've been at TBC. And uh, it's been a lot of fun being there the last nine-plus years. And uh, I see some familiar faces out there. And uh, just excited to be able to be here and, and talk to you guys uh, this morning. And so as the video uh, ex- explained a little bit, we're talking about hope. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to be there pretty much the whole time. Uh, so you can kind of hang out there in Romans 5. And as you turn in there, I'll give you a little ba- background about my family. I have a wife named Candace. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia, uh, but I married a... Uh, a Texan, so you guys know the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, I've been here for 17 or 18 years of marriage. So uh, um, my dad started a church up in Philadelphia, has been there for 38 years, still going strong. And uh, I have four kids, uh, another connection to Grace, our oldest daughter, Sydney, her middle name's Grace. Our second daughter, Kendall, her middle name's Hope, and that's what we're talking about today. So uh, then I have a son named Noah, he's five, and uh, Owen is two. So uh, just a crazy, crazy house. I texted my wife in between uh, services and um, asked her how things were going, and I got the usual response, crazy. So uh, uh, I f- kind of feel bad, but I don't. Uh, so as I looked in this passage this week, I just got more excited every day as I was kind of reading it through each night, just kind of. Focusing on Romans 5, when, when Dave asked me to speak, the first verse that popped in my head was uh, Romans 5, verses actually 4 and 5, the hope that doesn't disappoint. And so as we enter into this season of Advent, it's a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the nativity of Jesus at Christmas. So the Jews were longing to see that day when the Messiah would come. And for us, it's a similar longing that we have, not just looking back and and recognizing Jesus came, but also for us, his return as well. So we celebrate Advent. Uh, GBC here has some great resources. Out in the lobby, you'll see a green cover that you can take. Uh, It's a resource for a Devo guide, devotional guide for you and your family. Um, So feel feel free to take one of those out there. I'm, I'm, I'm taking one home to my family as well. So... Um, the first of the four Advent weeks, as you can see back here behind me, is hope. And that's what we're talking about today, a hope that does not disappoint. And when we think about hope, we think about um, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Uh, with all that's going on in the world today, uh, you can see that there's an obvious lack of hope. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> when you go over in the Middle East, you can see obvious lack of hope. Displaced refugees, millions of them right now, who are just looking for a home, looking for hope. Uh, and they're trying to search. And we have a missionary that uh, is in, in uh, a region over there. And it's just an interesting time 
of, uh, of, of hope that's being found in darkness. And that video uh, was pretty clear about that. Uh, so hope is a tough thing to come by, but not just overseas, but also locally. Some of you may see it around you, this lack of hope in your community, in your schools, at your job. Uh, as I work as a junior high pastor, uh, on Wednesday nights we have kids that come in, and, and some of these kids are, are, aren't from maybe traditional backgrounds like we may see at TBC uh, on a regular basis. And so I, I was driving some kids around uh, from an impact club back to their house a few years back, and uh, this lack of hope kind of hit me right in the face. There were four boys in that car, and I heard one boy say, uh, my dad's in jail. And then uh, three out of the four went on to say that their dads were in jail. These kids sitting in my car, they're 10, 11 years old. You talk about uh, not just lack of hope overseas, lack of hope as adults, lack of hope as adolescents, lack of hope as kids who see their families destroyed by divorce. There's so much, uh, there's such a lack of hope just in our communities today in our lives. So it's good for us to take some time to look at hope and true hope where it lies. There's a man who approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon and he asked a boy in the dugout what the score was. The boy responded, 18 to nothing, we're behind. Boy, said the spectator, I'll bet you're discouraged. Why should I be discouraged, replied the little boy. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. This kid had some hope. (laughs) He Maybe some uh, misguided hope, but uh, he was hopeful. He's like, hey, we haven't been up to bat. We got some hope here. The good thing for us as we think about hope is that we, uh, if we've trusted Christ as our Savior, we have a similar hope, but we actually have one that's gone to bat for us. We don't have to go to bat for ourselves. We don't have to handle the pressure and the suffering and the pain of this world on our own, but we have someone who has, in some ways, to go with the illustration, pinch hit for us. And he's hit a home run. And so for us, as we focus on hope today, um, we see even uh, thinking about the ESV study Bible gives us a great insight into hope. Those who are justified by faith have an unshakable hope, knowing they will be saved from God's wrath on the day of judgment by virtue of Christ's substitutionary death on their behalf. So there's a substitutionary death, a justification that takes place. And throughout Romans 5, as we look today, you're going to see a form of that word a number of times in this passage. So I want us to understand a little bit more of justification. Justification is God's act of removing the guilt and penalty of sin, while at the same time declaring a sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. Let me state that again. Justification is God's act of removing the guilt and penalty of sin, while at the same time declaring a sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. So some of you may have heard it put this way. I've taught it this way, but um, it's kind of an interesting analogy where you're in a courtroom and you are uh, waiting sentencing. There's been the trial and you know you're guilty. And you're guilty of a crime and you're guilty so much that you're actually facing death. And there's really, you don't see any hope in any uh, solution of the judgment that's about to come down on you. But someone steps in and takes your place. Someone willingly says, I will die for you. I will take your place. Judge, take me instead. 
I've heard this illustration, I've taught this illustration in relation to uh, justification, but I think that illustration falls a little short if we just leave it there. Because if you think about justification, that's only the first half of what it means to be justified. Someone taking your place, someone coming alongside you and saying, no, I know you deserve this, I know you deserve death, but I'm taking your place. But if we just leave it there, it's only halfway because we're still dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. We're still guilty. We're still uh, people that deserve some kind of punishment. And if we don't get punished then, we're going to get punished in the future because we still sin. And so if we take it a step further, we have to go further in this understanding of justification to realize that it's also God declaring us righteous. That you, in nothing, uh, nothing, no credit to you, but because of what Jesus did, you are declared righteous by God. That he not only takes your place through the sacrifice of his son, but then he also stamps you with this righteous tag. So that when God sees you, He doesn't see a dirty, rotten, stinking, nasty sinner anymore. He actually sees his son, Jesus, and his precious blood that covered our sin, that took away our sin. So that's justification, not just an exchange, taking your place, but also a declaration that you are righteous because of what Jesus did. So there's two simple points I'm going to give you today, and then I'll get out of your way. The first one is that we have a guarantee of hope. We have a guarantee of hope. Look at uh, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 5 of Romans. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You read this passage, it actually sounds very similar to another passage in James, uh, James chapter 1, this whole progression that James gives of trial and suffering. So it's important for us to see that Paul gives uh, this kind of like a list of things uh, that come about in this progression of things. He talks about peace, talks about grace, talks about rejoicing, suffering, endurance, character, and hope. So on one end, he's kind of reversed to the Advent season. He's over here starting with peace, and then he he finishes with hope. There's some things in the middle, and as a junior high pastor, I also often think immaturely about things. So I, I, I try not to incorporate that too much in my sermons to big people. But uh, in, this, in this instance, I couldn't help but think of an Oreo cookie. Uh, and I'll, I'll help you understand it as I go. But you got peace on one end. You got one side of the cookie. You got hope on the other side, right? And in the middle, you got some other ingredients. And one of the ingredients that you wouldn't normally associate with sweet white cream Like my daughter, she just licks the cream. She doesn't eat the cookie. She doesn't like chocolate. Something's wrong with her. But but something in the middle of the sweet cream is suffering. Paul includes 
in this progression, the fact that in order to have true hope, in order to understand what the hope is that, that, that exists within us, a big part of that is suffering. A big part of that is enduring difficult trials and testing and temptations and struggle. And so it's important for us to not discount that and not just focus on the peace and hope, but the reality is suffering is either in your backyard or it's coming. You are dealing with suffering now or you will deal with it soon. It's a part of life and it's a part of us learning who our true true hope is and where it can be found. So we can see that there's a hope that we have uh, a pastor in, up in Philadelphia. He's not my favorite just because he's from Philadelphia, but he's just a powerful speaker, a pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Um, he said this, it's just a really basic quote, you're only going through what you're going through. And you're like, uh, yeah, obviously. It's kind of, kind of obvious there that that's true. But he, he kind of laid the background a little bit. And he was talking about suffering, and he's saying, look, For us to have a proper perspective on hope, we need to understand that we are only going through suffering. That there is an end to suffering. Some of you are like, nah, I don't think so. I've been suffering way too long. But the reality is, the fact is, in Scripture it says that we have hope. That we have a promise. That we have something we look forward to. The end of suffering. The end of pain. Now, I I, I long for the day when when cancer is no more. Now, it may be because doctors come up with amazing cures, but eventually, someday, cancer will be no more. My mother-in-law, she passed away this past June at the age of 60 because of cancer. Just a difficult battle. And my, my wife and I have gone through that tough test and that tough trial. And the suffering that's taken place has brought us more hope brought us more hope in our Savior, hope of eternity, hope of something different, hope of restoration and redemption. So on the surface, we see these things are tough, but we have hope in something that lasts eternal. Look in uh, verse 2. We see where our hope lies is the grace in which we stand. This refers to the secure position of the believer's standing. And then it's the hope of the glory of God refers to the promise that Christians will be glorified and perfected at the last day. So this helps us understand that uh, it's kind of an interesting word picture that Paul uses, the grace in which we stand. So I kind of picture, just because I have a weird imagination maybe, but I just picture like a big tub. And it's like, you know, those things where sometimes people baptize people in, you know, like little short things. And I picture a bunch of water and me standing in the middle. And then I'm not moving out of that water. And that water that's in there is grace. And then I'm there standing in it. I don't move out of grace. That I'm there, I'm securing grace. When I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, grace exists and it's all around me and it never moves. It's the grace in which I stand every day, every moment of the day. But then that grace brings the hope of the glory. And uh, I love this this passage in in verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This tells us that this isn't natural, this hope. This hope isn't something that you just naturally have. I'm just full of hope today because if you look around you, you're not going to have hope. 
You look around, the people around you, the situations around us, you turn on the TV, you turn on the news, there's not a lot of opportunity to say there's hope out there. But the reality is that because we have God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that's where our hope lies. That's the core of our hope. And we get excited when we think about this love that God gives us. So let's move on to verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would care even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, there's that word again, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we have this guarantee of hope. This guarantee of hope, though, also includes the fact that we are weak without Christ, that we are hopeless without Jesus. We are in a tough position. And Paul uses this interesting analogy of dying for someone. He says, hey, someone's not going to die for an unrighteous person necessarily. They're not going to go out of their way and say, oh, I'll I'll take their place. I'll, I'll, I'll die for them. But even as a righteous person, as someone that maybe we even love, scare, you know, even rarely will someone say, I'm going to die for you. I will give my life for you. Now, maybe a dad for his children or his wife. Obviously, we live in a, a town of soldiers, you know, and so that's a situation, a whole other topic, but it's not a personal thing necessarily uh, the death is taking place. So it's, it's for us to understand this. Paul kind of says, hey, Christ died for you in the middle of your stinking, nasty, rotten sin. Christ died for you when you were an enemy of the cross of Christ. None of us in here deserved Christ's death on the cross, yet he did it anyway, even though we are enemies. The word reconcile is a, is a powerful word, uh, and it's helpful for us to understand in this situation as he uses it in verse 10, that we are reconciled. The Latin form of this word means to bring back together with considerable force. So it's not just this situation like, uh, I think uh, uh, this situation, like my, my, older t- my two older girls. I got a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. And, you know, they never fight, right? Uh, 10 and 8-year-old girls. So they're fighting all the time. So uh, we try to do this thing where they apologize to each other. I don't know if you parents have done this or if you kids have had this happen to you where they have to face each other, right? And uh, my dad did it to me, so I do it to them just to torture them. But... Uh, they face each other. They have to say, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And it's probably all fake, but I just make them do it anyway. And it's this, this reconciliation that takes place uh, that's, that's somewhat okay, but not quite all there. But that really doesn't describe true reconciliation according to the original definition. The original definition, there has to be some force that takes place to move something back into right relationship. And that's the picture we get of the gospel. The force that God put on his son, that put him on the cross, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, that was the force 
God was the source of this reconciliation. The force came in the, in the picture of the cross. And then we see these, this demonstration. The object was us. And then the result for us is rejoicing and hope. And so there's this reconciliation that takes place. And Paul paints a great picture of that. That there was considerable force that took place uh, on Christ to bring us into right relationship with God. And so it's, it's a powerful thing. So not only do we have a guarantee of hope, but we also have uh, the proof of the guarantee of hope. Moving on in Romans 5, we see in, in, these, in these verses here, uh, 12 through 20, this proof of the guarantee of hope. So let's uh, read those, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, But sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not, like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So let's stop there for a second. Hope was dashed through the sin of Adam as death and eternal punishment passed to all. It's important for us to understand that, that in Adam, when he sinned, death, and eternal punishment passed to everybody. It doesn't sound fair, but it's truth. And it's what God's Word says. And for us to understand that, some of us may argue, well, how is it that uh, you can say that you, we have a sin nature and that, that we're, we're born in sin and that we're born into this sinful nature? Uh, the best description I can come up with or the best evidence I can come up with uh, just kind of off the top of my head, is uh, any kid that's under two. And many of you have had children. Maybe they're older now. Some of you are in the middle of, of kids and raising them. Uh, I have a two-year-old we just adopted recently. And uh, he of the four um, is the craziest with those things called temper tantrums. And recently, my wife started texting me pictures of his tantrums. And she texted me one of him face first in the post office, uh, just down on his hands and, I mean, on his belly in the dirty nest, which my wife's a germaphobe, so it makes it more funny. But uh, on his belly, just throwing a fit. He's in H-E-B, throwing a fit. And he's throwing his head around, busting my lip open because he's got a big old hard head, you know. And it's, it's just, it's, it's tough but it's such a great picture of the sin nature. No one taught him to sin. No one taught him to scream. No one taught him to look at his brother with his wagging finger and say, stop. He could barely say any words, but he knows that word because his five-year-old brother tortures him. But it's sin nature, and you don't have to go far to see it. It's obvious in us, and it comes from Adam. It's very, very... uh, powerful illustration but uh, paul goes on to say death came to us death spread to all men and again this picture in my head is cancer when i was 15 which was 26 years ago you can do the math but 26 years ago uh my my mom was diagnosed with cancer well 26 years ago when you hear the word cancer in my mind as a 15 year old i thought death sentence And that's the same picture that we get when we think about sin, that when Adam sinned, death passed to all men and all women. 
the ones that uh, would exist soon after him and the ones like us who existed long after him, death passed to all of us. And so it's important for us to see this, that death comes through sin. So Adam is a type of Christ, for both Adam and Christ are covenantal heads of the human race, so that all people are either in Adam or in Christ. So all of us are in Adam by physical birth. We are children of Adam, so to speak. <clears throat> but uh, only those who have trusted in Jesus are in Christ by birth, spiritual birth, uh, new birth. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 gives us a good picture of this. It says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So because of Adam's sin, it's passed on to us. Now we all die. Depressing thought. <laughs> We're all facing death. But the hope that comes is right here in the second half. Is also in Christ shall all be made alive. So that's a powerful statement. So moving on in verse 15. Let's look at that. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. There's that word again. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to, there's that word again, justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a powerful passage. The free gift. Romans 6.23 talks about that. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift is eternal life. Paul takes some time to do some contrasting here. He puts Adam on one side and he puts uh, Jesus on the other side. And we see that he gives this contrast that takes place. And, and the reality is this. Adam on one side brought death, sin, pain, struggle, trial. All those things came from Adam. Like, thanks a lot, Adam. <laughs> you know? All these things are, are referenced and embodied in Adam, our physical father. <clears throat> but then we see that one man, capital M, brought justification, grace, righteousness, and eternal hope. The one man on this side brought hopelessness. Without Jesus, we don't have hope. And many people are living over here, stuck in this state of hopelessness, stuck in this state of depression, looking around them and seeing where is the hope? Where can I find any kind of, any source of hope right now? But then in steps Jesus, who brings hope, who brings grace in which we stand, who brings justification, who brings sanctification, who brings us righteousness and new life. So the disobedience of Adam 
First, the obedience of Christ. Adam disobeyed hopelessness. Jesus was obedient even unto death on a cross. Brings hope. And so Paul gives this observation. He helps us understand that through Adam, all of us have sinned and we all deserve punishment. But because of Jesus, we have grace. It's a statement I I want you to listen to and kind of dwell on and meditate on. Grace can be much more appreciated in seeing our sin in all its ugly splendor. Grace can be much more appreciated in seeing our sin in all its ugly splendor. You know what we're really good at when it comes to sin? We're really good at justifying ourselves. We're really good at sweeping it under the rug, trying to make it not seem so bad. But that goes against grace. That goes against hope. That goes against justification and sanctification because we're basically trying to say we are okay on our own. That, that we're all right. We can kind of make it. And the reality we need to understand is, like, I love the, the, the time of forgiveness and our prayer of confession because it lays out our dirty, rotten, stinky, nasty sin right in the open and says, guess what? We're losers without Christ. We have no hope without Christ. We can get all dressed up and we can look nice on a Sunday morning. But inside, we're dirty, we're nasty without Jesus. And so this powerful passage helps us to see, look, this is the best place for you to be, is living transparent so that you confess and you get it out there and you recognize you're lost without Christ. You're hopeless without Christ. And then God does great things through you because you're empty. You're hopeless without any, anything to do with Jesus. Because of the sinful world we live in, there will be many things that come our way that try to steal our hope. Martin Luther King is a great example of this. He fought a constant uphill battle for racial equality and freedom uh, for his people. And on the topic of hope, he states, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. He often struggled, obviously, with disappointment in the people that were around him, in the pastors that were supposed to be backing him, that let him down, in the political arena, so many areas of disappointment in that man's life. But he was able to say, no, my hope isn't in here. My hope isn't in this world. I know people. I know they're dirty, rotten sinners. I'm one of them. But you know what I hope in? I hope in something that's eternal. It's an infinite hope. So as we kind of wrap up this story, kind of focus a little bit on this eternal hope and kind of just want to personalize this this idea of hope a little bit um told you about uh, you know briefly about adopting this little guy uh, about two years ago and the idea of hope kind of ties in a little bit with that uh, we started this process of fostering an adoption about four years ago and we have three kids by birth and just really god put it on our heart to really consider fostering and adoption and so we got to that point where we're like okay so we go through all the trainings and if anybody's familiar with trainings there with foster and adoption it's mind-blowing and uh almost rather stick a pencil in my eye but uh but it, it's tough and it's <laughs> it's grueling and i understand why they have the trainings i understand certain things need to be told uh but a guy that has three kids already doesn't need to be told not to shake a baby 
Uh, it also doesn't need to be told to like lock your medicine up here where you can barely reach it and uh, leave a, a uh, shelf on your fridge empty except for medicine. Uh, it's very interesting. You should read some of the uh, insights into, into foster training. But anyway, uh, that's enough of that. So uh, hope is what we're talking about. So the idea of hope is that we trained and we kind of had this idea that one day we'll get to have this little girl or guy running around our house. And that was our, what our hope was in, that someday this will happen. And so we trained and trained for over a year, a year and a half, and got through all that. And then uh, the, the day came where we got a call. Well, I was in Rwanda. I'm leading these mission trips to Rwanda each summer, and I'm over there. And my wife, through FaceTime, contacts me and says, hey, uh, we got a call about this kid. And I'm like, I'm in Africa, you know. Are you putting this on me to try to help you make this decision? And I'm uh, 20 some hours away and I'm like I'm, I'm gonna let you decide because you're the one gonna be taking this little guy in right now with three other kids by yourself so she decided you know we're gonna go ahead and do it he's about three at the time and uh, so she said she's gonna go ahead and do it so our, our missions pastor Chase Bowers was there in Rwanda with me and I'm telling him I'm so excited you know and hope was just springing out of me you know I was just ear to ear just smile you know uh, just really excited about uh, meeting this little guy and being able to get home and rush home. I was even talking about taking an earlier flight out of there so I could see him. Uh, but even during that time, uh, the hope was pretty much dashed at that while we were there that uh, there was some complications, some issues, and then uh, some family members popped up. And my hope of meeting this kid was gone. So my hope, if my hope was truly in him, would have been totally dashed, totally destroyed, because I never even got to meet the little guy. So hope goes like this, right? Our hope in, in temporary things. And then we get the call. A, a great call. Uh, one day I play basketball at lunchtime, and so in between a game, uh, like a good husband, I check my phone. Uh, because, you know, you never know what's going to happen, and you want to make sure your phone's there. You don't want to get basketball to shut down, so you got to Make sure you're a good husband. And I, so I checked my phone, and it just worked out. God's timing. She, my wife's calling and saying, hey, we just got a call about a newborn. He was just born right down the street in, at Seton, and uh, you need to uh, get home. And I'm like, all right. I'm, I'm all sweaty. Jump in the car and go. This kid's going to be at your house in two hours. And my hope, all the way home, you know, I'm like, you know, obviously speeding. And I'm sure the cops might have understood. I don't know on the cop, but uh, I'm hopeful, I'm excited, and, and I'm full of hope, but the reality is it was a foster situation, and he's a newborn, and that rarely turns out good for the foster parent. So we're hopeful, but we're also reserved. We're hopeful, we don't want to get too hopeful, because we don't know if he'll stay. But uh, a few weeks ago, I, I guess more like a month or so ago, uh, we got to finally see, stand before that judge, and he declared him officially a member of our family. And uh, hope was realized. But as I think about hope, and hope in that, even then, there could have been a possibility that couldn't have worked out. And so my hope, if all it was was in this little guy coming to our family, you know, that, that would have been really disappointing. But my hope isn't in that. Now, yes, I'm joyful. I'm excited. I'm rejoicing every day that he's part of our family, even though he throws tantrums all the time. Someday we're going to make a book 
of just all those pictures and then give it to his future wife or something. So uh, we'll get him back. But, uh, but my hope isn't in things in this earth, in this world. My hope is in Jesus Christ that lasts forever. So as we wrap it up, I, I know that you're here today and you run the length of the scale of hope. All of us in here aren't the same when it comes to hope. Some of you are dealing with major tragedy or trial in your life. You long for the flood of hope to drench your life, but all you're getting right now is just a little dripping faucet of hope. And some of you, maybe you're just in the middle. You're one day full of hope, and and next your hope is gone, and you're like on that hope roller coaster that a lot of us live in. Some of you have taken the concept of hope for granted and you're slaving away to create some kind of false hope for yourself. Maybe you can impress God, live like a Pharisee, and do good things. And then you can have hope in your own good self, which is really a bad idea. And you're hoping in the wrong thing. And some of you have been enlightened by the Spirit to the true measure of hope, which is Jesus Christ. And then some of you maybe out there are still weighing the options. And you're trying to see, is it, is it good? Is it sufficient for me to place my true hope in Jesus? And I, I pray that that happens today. There's no lasting hope except the hope that is found in Jesus. Hope in this world, hope in our family, hope in our jobs, hope in our education, hope in ourselves comes and goes. And it's a depressing thing if you continue to hope in that. But the reality, just like this statement says, Jesus is ours And we are His forever. That's where our hope should lie. Let's pray. Dear God, we just uh, thank You and praise You that in this world we, we are promised tribulation. You promise us struggle if we follow You. But Lord, we're thankful that our hope does not rest in the things of this world. Our hope does not rest in the people that are near us, our loved ones, our friends, our jobs. Lord, we thank you that our hope rests in someone who came as a little baby to this earth to live a life that was sinless, to live a life that honored you, to take our place, and to not only take our place, but to give us new life and declare us righteous before you. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in here today that does not have that hope, has never trusted in you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they'll take the time to even do that today, that you will just pierce their heart with a message of the gospel to help them understand that true hope only comes in trusting Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. As we continue this service and a time of communion and reflection, Lord, I pray that you'll Uh, Just allow us to do business with you in this area of hope and confess our false hope to you and rest in the uh, hopefulness that comes through the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.